Welcome to the Share Life Podcast with Jason Scott Montoya, where we explore stories and systems to live better and work smarter. In this Listen to Learn episode of the Share Life Podcast, I'm speaking with Jesse Nigro. Jesse, say hello. Hello. <laughs> uh, Jesse is the uh, editor-in-chief at the North American Anglican. Today, we're going to be speaking about Alistair McIntyre's suggestion and after virtue, emotivism, the Enlightenment's failures, and whether we should choose Aristotle or Nietzsche. Jesse has lived, he lives in Omaha, Nebraska with his wife and children, where he teaches philosophy at a classical high school. Jesse has a BA in philosophy and an MA in theology. And uh, if you're watching this on video, you may notice his his daughter pop in or here or there. Uh, but so far, she is uh, um, uh, uh, just uh, joining us in the background. <laughs> so I want to start out, um, have a conversation about the kind of a root problem that, that we want to sketch out, talk about transitioning away from that, how to interface um, while we are away from it, and, um, and then also uh, talk about a Christian perspective as well. Um, so, Jesse, you wrote this four-part essay series on the North American Anglican website titled Secular Stories. Yeah. What I'd like to do is to have you sketch out for us, you know, what is Alistair McIntyre's suggestion? What is emotivism as well as Max Weber's influence on it? What is voluntarism, voluntarism and how it relates? And uh, why is our missing telos a problem? So... We'll, yeah. we'll leave it there and let you start sketching that out for us. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, uh, it's, uh, well, there's lots to cover. And obviously, uh, After Virtue is a big book, as you know. Yeah. Um, and not only big, but dense. Yeah. In the sense that it, uh, you know, kind of expects a familiarity with a bunch of different schools of philosophical schools of thought. So if you like to uh, chase down um footnotes and rabbit trails like I do. It's a lot of fun um, and, and accessible, too. I think, um, you know, it, if anyone in your audience is wondering, well, could I pick this up and understand it? I think you could, you know, um, quite a bit of it. And, um, you know, my purpose in writing these articles was in part um, not to be a replacement for reading After Virtue yourself, but I think um, hopefully to uh, let people feel less daunted um, but also um, primarily because I think it's, it's uh, in our day and age um, of ethical confusion and rhetorical, you know, people just seem to be speaking past each other. This, um, well, the, uh, the, the dilemma, the problem that Alistair McIntyre describes um, seems fitting. So um, <clears throat> he borrows from science fiction and sort of describes this post-apocalyptic world where um, the world of scientific knowledge uh, is basically someone has cobbled together the scraps of textbooks and um, he describes, you know, children are chanting or reciting incomplete periodic tables, <laughs> right? People are saying that they... They talk about Einstein and Newton without really understanding what Einstein or Newton accomplished because um, it's just what they have to work with. And they're trying to do science, but they don't even know what they don't know. 
they don't realize that not only are they not doing science, but they don't realize why they're not doing science because they just utterly lack the context. And what McIntyre does is he says, um, you know, uh, according to a certain uh, kind of lingo, you could say that uh, after the Matrix, he he offers the red pill uh, (laughs) like Morpheus and says, you know, here we are. Um, Just so you know, what I'm describing is us when it comes to morality. He's saying that what we what we as a people do in the public square when we think we're debating moral issues is more or less what these imagined um, pitiable uh, post-apocalyptic um, so-called intellectuals do when they recite um, equations they don't understand at one another. You know, yeah. he's saying that when we have debates about things like wage, you know, minimum income or abortion or any of these things in our society, you have people that utterly lack the context from which these ethical theories sort of derive. And therefore we speak past each other and we end up in shouting matches that, um, you know, when the applause settles down, it was more or less who could shout better than rather than who had the better argument yeah i think he calls it like shrill uh shrillness (laughs) yes and and i think boy you know i mean for a book that was written in the 80s this is such a modern and contemporary and relatable passage don't you think yeah it's it's interesting you know because i read it uh, within the last couple years but its relevance to today it, it seems so obvious for me when i was reading it um but to you know i'd be curious if people when they first read it when it was first published did it seem as obvious or were some of the cracks that we now see that have opened up made it more obvious so right absolutely i i think um if anything i'm i'm sure that uh uh well one pro one problem with the problem that mcintyre <laughs> identifies is that um you will be in a situation where you won't even realize that it's happened, yeah. right? So unlike in the uh, sci-fi scenario where there's been a nuclear fallout and the evidence is everywhere, um, he says that when it comes to modern morals and moral theory, we don't even realize the explosions happened, but it has. Mm-hmm. And how it's affected us and how we operate as if it is the 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 foundation of, of our reasoning. And so we may think that we're reasoning, morally reasoning in a particular way, but we don't even realize that we've accepted uh, underlying assumptions and premises of this paradigm. Yes. And I think, um, yeah, the paradigm that he, that he identifies is that of emotivism, right? And, and that, as you say, um, there are convinced emotivists, right? Yeah. They're usually academic philosophers. Um, but you don't have to even know what the word emotivism is or understand it or even agree with it to be, as McIntyre says, behaving as though it's true. Yeah. Right? And and we do that by um, engaging in arguments, maybe. I mean, I, th- I like to think of it this way, like, 
if I know my opponent doesn't share any of my starting principles, then what is it that I hope to achieve when I start a moral argument with them? Yeah. Right? Do I think that they will just throw down all of their core beliefs and adopt mine because I argued well about, I don't know, a loaf of bread or whatever happens to be at stake? Um, you know, and so insofar as we're willing to engage in these moral arguments as though our radical differences don't matter, it we're behaving like emotivism is true, according to McIntyre. Mm-hmm. So how how would you how would you define emotivism if someone's like, Well, what is that? Like how do I make sense of that? Right. Or... Yeah, great question. Um so emotivism is you know, as a philosophical position, um, th- this idea that people believe that whenever we're doing uh, argument over a moral issue, we're basically just deep down asserting our preference, mm-hmm. right? It's you. You say that you've got all these arguments for why. Um, abortion should be legal or illegal or issues of immigration or any any other sort of hotly contended um, you know topic but deep down you're just sort of arguing for whatever you want to be the case and yeah. you'll pull whatever tool out of your toolbox that you think will get you there yeah. is, is what the emotivist believes about moral discourse yeah and so McIntyre's any any justification saying, is simply is simply a cover story for what we want. <laughs> absolutely. It's about asserting your will. I want this yeah. to be the case and I'll just do whatever it takes to you know make it the case, right? So how would you uh so you you talk about Max Weber's influence. Like how does he play into emotivism or what's his role in fleshing emotivism out? Yeah, um well, yeah, Weber or Weber or he's his influence comes in um, and is definitely, uh, you know, underscored by McIntyre. Um, in part, he he belongs to this new way of understanding the world, which is sociological um, and kind of this mechanistic view of humanity where uh, we can understand the sorts of things that humans are and what they ought to get up to by studying them the way you would a machine or anything else. Um, so, yeah, the the Weberian part, I think, connects to McIntyre really thinking that when you live in this emotivist world, um, whether people realize they're emotivist or not, what you've done is you've rejected the theological view of humanity, which is to say that people and things uh, have purposes. And um, the Weberian view is far more um, mechanistic and you know, you're, you're trying to, uh, study humans the way you would ants Mm -hmm. and, um, you don't necessarily have these moral obligations necessarily. You just kind of want to, uh, 
say, well, if I were to add this to their environment, they would behave this way or that way, mm -hmm. you know? So like, would you consider that like reductionism or compartmentalization? Is that kind of what you mean by that? Well, it's, it's definitely reductive, you know, in the sense that modernity is kind of inherently reductive and Weber is a materialist, right? He's an anti-supernaturalist. His whole point of doing sociology the way he does is to, um, you know, kind of take all our preconceived notions that came from a really a robustly Christian or metaphysical perspective and say, well, that was really a cover, right? That was a cover for this, was a cover for this, and peel back humanity mm -hmm. and... And, uh, and from his know. point of view, because he believes it is a cover story, it it is a cover story, right? If, if he's right, right? If if he's right, it's that then this is, of course, what you should do, right? And I think, you know, what McIntyre and others are sort of about is to say, well, why did we buy this um, assumption, right? Maybe we need to contextualize this assumption, which, uh, you know, that it's all a cover story, right? Um, and part of the way that McIntyre does that is through his sort of historical method of evaluating all of these philosophical schools. You know, he wants to say, well, hey, let's... Uh, we already know we're in this mess. It's this apocalyptic moral mess, right? Well, how do we understand the present? We have to look back through history and kind of evaluate all these different schools um, in their own context that they arose so we can get a bigger picture and, and do that evaluation. Like, well, maybe this is not all true and maybe this one is. And how can we yeah. uh, know? Sorry, uh Little, little girl is making some noise here. <laughs> but how can we contribute. know unless we uh, um, are able to take that step back? And he uses sort of the historical method yeah. for doing that. And it, it would almost seem uh, the emotivists would want to push back even on that endeavor to say that that, that history doesn't matter. Because it's, again, it's just another cover story. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and when you when you're committed to that, I mean, this is maybe one one thing that people have have pushed back on McIntyre and just said, well, he's uh, he's great if you already are inclined to believe that sort of thing. But w you wouldn't convince a skeptic necessarily. Yeah. Um, and that may be true. Um, I'm not although sure. to some degree. I mean, McIntyre was the skeptic when he wrote After Virtue, wasn't he? Yeah, well, and and by skeptic I mean sort of the skeptic of virtue theory. Yeah. But but yeah, you're right. He was not a uh, a professing Christian at the time, which is part of what makes the book so interesting to me. Um, so maybe this is the point you're making that um, even an atheist or an agnostic can come as far as McIntyre came. Yeah. In after virtue, which is pretty interesting yeah um and i don't agree with all of his conclusions i think that he does better after he converts and is able to <laughs> sort of uh re-understand his project through christian eyes i think it helps mm -hmm. him out quite a bit yeah so how um so what is volun voluntary voluntarism how do you say it? oh Volunt sure yeah yeah um i mean voluntarism is this moral theory that basically um morals come 
from directly from God. Moral imperatives are sort of just these laws, almost arbitrary laws, that it's just this is the way God wants it. We don't need to understand why or, you know, um, contextualize it at all. Um, what's demanded of us is obedience. Um, and you you can kind of get this sense that, um, you know, this view of morality and God could make anything true if God yeah. willed it to be. Um, and one of the points that people who are, you know, I'm, I'm not a voluntarist um, would say is that, well, this means that God could make rape or murder or any kind of atrocious act morally good if he de decided, you know, mm. if, if he decided it was the right sort of thing for the time. Um, and one reason why... Uh, <laughs> Just something else to say. <laughs> yeah, she's got lots to add. One reason why um, McIntyre uh, sees this as sort of falling at the feet of the Protestant tradition um, is that it does sort of get a some new life, you could say, after the um, Enlightenment from people like Soren Kierkegaard, for example, who uh, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with sort of his telling of um, the Abraham and Isaac story where, um, you know, Abraham being the knight of faith does the right thing, even though he knew it was morally wrong. Right. Mm -hmm. Thing, And so Kierkegaard calls that what the, uh, the teleological suspension of the ethical. Um, so. And what does he this, mean by that more specifically? Uh, basically because his, telos is aimed at god then um that was to do what god wants you to do is good enough reason to suspend your moral or your ethical mm. sort of beliefs. yeah well it's it's um, interesting that you say that because um there's a book by oswald chambers called um our ultimate refuge and it's about the story of job and that tension is what comes up at the very end of the book in the very end mm. of the book of job which between job and elihu and essentially this idea of authority and job is essentially pushing back and say well god can't just be the authority he has to be a worthy authority does that make sense mm. yeah well that that's interesting yeah i i think it the the job book is is fascinating on so many levels it ultimately even though i like kierkegaard in in many respects i think he's fundamentally wrong on on this issue of saying that necessarily we have to conclude that um, obedience to God, God's will, that voluntary part, um, required a dismissal of what you know to be ethically or morally true. Um, I take a more sort of uh, Thomistic, you know, approach to these things. And, and I think that um, there are other ways to read, read that story, but you know, when it comes back to Job, um, I mean, for instance, uh, what is, you know, what does God say in, in the whirlwind there at the end? I mean, Job wants to know sort of the reason why all this bad stuff is happening, right? Yeah. And and God's answer is not, 
like what you'll hear from a Christian apologist sometimes, like, well, in order to preserve free will, I had to allow a certain amount of bad stuff to happen. Or, you know, some of these other um, examples, what he says is, it's not for you to know, right? Where were you when I was knitting reality together? You know, that's, it's, the answer is the sort of thing that people who were there for that event get to know about, right? Or fully understand. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess you could say that makes Job a voluntarist uh, <laughs> story, but I, I think that really it's not so much that we don't have to conclude from these things that God arbitrarily wills, um, but what, what we can conclude perhaps is that some things just by their nature will be beyond our understanding. Yeah. Um, that being said, I, I do believe sort of affirm the natural law tradition in, in morality and um, I think there's plenty of things that by their nature are accessible to us and God makes those accessible to us Yeah. for, which allows, you know, per, perhaps that common moral sort of, uh, inquiry that, um, that McIntyre's worried about. And I think actually natural law is something that he did not seem to affirm as a non-believer in after virtue and would later kind of pick up. And I think it does flesh out his theory quite a bit. Yeah. Because you get the sense that, like, in an Aristotelian fashion, he believes that virtue and communities of virtue are things that you're either busy building or else they'll just erode altogether and then you'll just be out of luck. Yeah. Right? Whereas I think um, when you believe that there's... Uh, God has created us with a certain certain innate abilities to kind of know and understand good from evil just from our experience of living in the world is a little more optimistic, perhaps. Yeah, <laughs> there's more grounding to, to sustain it. Right. So so I want to, I, I guess if you could dive in a little bit more specifically, like what is the problem with um, the lack of the telos, like to lack that vision to miss to to not have it or to 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 uh, um, reason morally without it, like what what is it that's the problem with doing that? Like why should yeah. someone care to to even consider that as? A... Sure. Well, I mean, I think um, you know, uh, you know, the the telos is sort of that that final cause of of Aristotle's four causes. It's it's the one that tells you what this thing is for. Right. And if we're thinking of human persons, then um, it makes a huge difference if you want to say, well, you ought to do this or you ought not to do that. If you think that we have like a purpose in general or not, or if you think that, um, you know, as some, you know, modern philosophers would say, like, well, we just each have our own telos that is utterly unrecognizable from the others. Right. They're unrelated, except that. If you're human, you have one, right? Um, if if humanity is, if we're all sort of created with certain purposes, um, then what we should be doing uh, is going to be related to that, right? Well, we should be living in accordance with that telos, right? Mm -hmm. um, now, you could say that um, as a Christian believers, you know, uh, our purpose is to know and love God or be in, in a relation, right relation with him in some, some sense, ultimately. Um, but I think that, uh, 
you know, Aristotle has this other uh, idea of the good life that is lived in the here and now. And I don't think those have to be sort of at odds. I think that we as Christian believers can certainly see like um, living in line with God's commands or laws or truths is sort of part of what we would call that uh, eudaimonia, <laughs> which is sort of that Greek word that Aristotle uses for the good life, you know? Okay. Yeah. So let's say we acknowledge, okay, hey, th there is something wrong. The explosion has happened, so to speak. Right. Um, and I maybe I didn't know about this emotivism or I didn't understand it, but I had some senses that sort of something like this was there. And I had some sort of a, sort of senses towards a teleological way of thinking, whether I sort of use those words or not. So I've sort of bought into the premise here. There's a problem and there's a better solution. So how does someone transition from from being into in the matrix to taking the red pill and and sort of exiting it uh tell us about that transition process sure um well i think it's uh yeah this is maybe the most sort of poignant for our our cultural and societal moment right now because um it you know uh in the last few years, we've noticed what you might call sort of major glitches in the matrix. As yeah, it were, yeah. You know, I mean, more and more people are waking up and saying, deja oh, vu. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Deja vu. Right. Yeah. It's like, Oh, I seem to remember there only being two sons last week or whatever, yeah. you know, like, <laughs> like things are changing. And, and, uh, you could say that, uh, the, the, the wizard of Oz, you know, the, the curtain is, is being pulled back a little bit. Um, so, so what do you do about that, right? And 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 one thing that I appreciate about McIntyre uh, so much is that, as a sort of former Marxist who is interested in virtue, uh, he has a lot to say with like the role of institutions in virtue and in sort of promoting a virtuous society or community. Um, Books have been written along along these lines. Um, you know, uh, his famous sort of concluding line of the book is uh, saying that what we need is another um, Saint Benedict, right? Yeah. And uh, Rod Dreher has written the book, The Benedict Option, and um, and so many people have sort of proposed, like, well, what would it mean to be uh, living in 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 the Matrix, so to speak, but not of it? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, like what kind of communities should we be trying to form uh, so that we can uh, be resilient to, say, the forces, the, the, the prevalent forces of culture, which are um, sort of these institutionalized forms of emotivism or, or whatever, uh, in a way so that we can actually have sane conditions for moral living if not for ourselves then you know be a, a good influence to the rest of society uh as far as how to do that or what to do i mean i think that um you know one one place where i'll agree with Dreher is that there is a need for kind of parallel institutions um if you are become convinced that the school that you went to no longer maybe it was um, established to teach truth and had a sort of uh, 
the practice of education was was uh, was there, and um, and it was producing certain virtues that are um, you know specific to that practice, right? Um, well, what if you determine that this institution no longer serves its initial purpose or its founding principles and is no longer really aimed at truth and that the virtues that used to be inherent to that practice of education are no longer going to be available to my kids, right? Well, I think that um, if you found yourself with that red pill in hand, so to speak, <laughs> Um, you may decide, well, I need to find or help build or invest somehow in an institution that can achieve those ends in a way that I believe is faithful to the truth and whether it be moral truth or, or any other kind. So, yeah, I think, you know, some kind of, you know, people of goodwill really yeah. ought to be evaluating their institutions saying, hey, is this thing still do or did it ever do what yeah. I really thought it was meant to do? Yeah. And um, if well, your how, answer how do is we, no. Yeah, how do we differentiate between the fact that we may just be building another emotivist institution versus building a teleological one? I mean, that's obviously, uh, it's certainly a danger. Um, I think that uh, being aware of the possibility well, well, you know, so so that's the thing with, you know, the historical aspect. Clearly, um, the founders of like Cambridge or Harvard or whatever were not thinking of emotivism becoming like, you know, like eventually people will come along and they'll <laughs> not even realize, you know, so so they didn't even have the danger of this in mind. Yeah. So in some sense, I guess you could say that we have the benefit of hindsight, which is to say, we've been able to see sort of civilization, Christendom even, raise and rise and grow and flourish, but we've also been able to see failures. And um, one benefit of being this side of failures, like if you've determined that this emotivism is a problem, is that you, you can be weary of it, right? Maybe yeah. even write policy, which is to say like, this sort of doctrine or dogmatic thinking leads to this. And we just, we're not about that here. If you want to do that, there's places for you, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how would you distinguish the difference between a, a Max Weber, um, Weber, how do you say it, Weber, um, organization versus a, uh, an Aristotelian teleological business? Like, how sure. would they practically function differently? Um, I mean, that's, that's a, a cool question because I think, well, first of all, I think most modern kind of bureaucratic institutions are Weberian more or less. Okay. Um, I think McIntyre says so, but I, I don't think that's even really very, uh, scandalous. I mean, someone will be mad is like yelling right now, like, of course <laughs> that's scandalous. But no, I think that, um, you know, the Weberian idea is sort of like, well, we'll just add some extra process and we'll you know, um, debate, you know, we'll have experts of these different fields and they'll sort of compare their notes and, and then we'll determine where to go from there, you know, sort of according to the, the big picture. Um, but of course that big picture is never like a real, what you do next at the organizational level of an institution always requires some kind of purpose, right? 
Yeah. And so I think that's sort of, you know, even the that's part of McIntyre's critique is he's saying the sociological worldview that of the social sciences pretends to be this sort of objective scientific um, we're just going to analyze analyze the way things are and then determine, you know, what seems best for next steps. And he's saying that basically when you um, pretend there's no such thing as a telos, uh, what happens is you get the sort of Nietzschean reaction, which is to say that someone with a will to power is going to come along and apply their will to this situation. And we'll all just be doing what they think we ought to do, regardless of what the sort of surfacey cover story is, right? So well, that, that also sense, implies that there's no way to push back in terms of a transcendent moral value because it is a will to power, right? Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, most, most people who are involved in these kinds of projects are going to resist that claim that this is just raw will. Yeah. Um, but, but it, and, and it, it's also in that sense, in, in a way that that's the a lot of the Marxists out there now, socialists, that's the claim they're making, right? And in that sense, we actually have alignment with with uh, the possibility of that paradigm, it, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. I mean, in terms I, of illuminating the that, problem. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like for Marx, I think he's he's actually a, a good study of sort of like how certain things like his crit criticisms, I think are very interesting. Um, but ultimately, uh, even at like the communist manifesto, the final lines are, are not, um, workers of the world, you know, <laughs> throw off your shackles. It's like, yeah, you guys will continue to be the workers of the world. We'll just have a new aim. You know, <laughs> it's like it, they're, they're not going to really do away with yeah. the industrialized dehumanizing society. We just have a, we got a new, a new telos for you. Right. Yeah. Um, so in that so sense, yeah. it's, it's nihilistic or it's fatalistic, right? Well, it's definitely fatalistic because they think it's inevitable. Yeah. Like humanity is sort of evolving towards the, the communist utopia mm -hmm. in, in, in that perspective. Um, which has, of course, been a big frustration for the Marxist schools. And, and that's where you get the neo-Marxism, you yeah. know, of the Frankfurt School. Like, well, why, why hasn't this happened yet? You know, well, yeah. it's, it's these culture institutions that are propping up capitalism or the bourgeoisie or whatnot. And then, I mean, so this all ties into the, the issues of virtue, though, because then you had a whole bunch of scholars whose purpose was to target the institutions of Western cultures that were more or less maintaining traditional yeah. ways of life. And so for that reason, I think it, you know, McIntyre is really good at helping you figure out how to evaluate these institutions. But, um, one thing he doesn't do a ton of is evaluating, oh boy, I've got a complaint here, <laughs> evaluating how basically some of the work of deteriorating virtue and institutions and whatnot has been done quite purposely, you know, mm. and, and with a lot of agency and, and uh, you know, it wasn't just that, boy, the Enlightenment Project didn't work out. Right. It was also that there were people who didn't want this thing to work out. They're trying to 
again, remove those mediating institutions so that they could bring about the uh, the telos that they wanted for mankind. In terms of the telos, part of it is, I think the distinction is that the telos can't just be an arbitrary vision that we establish. It has to be in line with a higher transcendent order mm -hmm. or it's... Um, where it's problematic, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that's where um, McIntyre does better after after virtue <laughs> because he then, you know, begins to understand that, you know, it's not that just having a purpose or a set of virtues is important, but, you know, that some purposes are realer or truer or better than others. Yeah. So I think part of what I was, would hear from you then is that... Um, in terms of the Max, the the, the Viberian influence, the people that adopt that philosophy are interested in perpetuating the organization for its own sake, and not for the sake of a telos that is that aligns with a transcendent vision, right? Yeah, yep, and and it it's definitely you know we become cogs in the in the machinery of the organization and it can it can very quickly become uh dehumanizing in that way yeah and in that sense we we also do the, there's also the machine of our country let's say america and and he talks about these different roles that we sort of play in perpetuating the machine versus actually questioning whether this is the machine we should be participating in or pushing back right yeah you know i i, I think um I think that all of these sort of questions, when it when it comes to these specific institutions, we have to ask ourselves: um, Is this? Do I have a an allegiance or a loyalty that's due to the this institution, or is this institution um, a stand-in for something that I do have a real, you know? Because I think that uh, as someone who's born in this nation, I have a uh, there's something owed to me, you could say, a, a, a pietas, you know, in a, in a sort of Aristotelian sense to, to my father, to my fatherland, to whatever, you know, there's something in which you owe something to your community. It kind of helped bring you about, right? Yeah. Um, but does, is that sort of piety that's owed, is that specifically owed to, the United States government in its particular form as it exists now, you know, and I think that's a, a different conversation yeah. and requires for, you know. Well, yeah, that's interesting because it illuminates the, the loyalty uh, can be to the organization or the entity, or it can be to the, the vision of which that entity and the values of which are held to of that entity. So it's, it's a vehicle mm -hmm. towards somewhere. Am I, am I allegiance, is my allegiance to the vehicle or to the destination? And I think that the danger of our allegiance to the vehicle is that when the vehicle goes off the road, we go off the road with it, and we can do some pretty terrible things right along with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that's, you know, we, there, we've got all, all sorts of uh, moral experiments that have been performed, <laughs> you know, where people were, well, uh, the guy with the lab coat told me to shock the... You know, the, the, the innocent person, but yeah. it, he did have a lab coat. So, yeah. you know, um, obviously people can do all sorts of awful things because they think 
They're doing their part within the system, right? I'm just yeah. doing my job, right? Yeah. And that's a huge part of um, not only just a terrible moral situation that so many people are willing to behave that way, you know, according to McIntyre, but it's also perh-perpetuating this emotivist yeah. Uh, yeah. Morally relativistic <laughs> thing. Right. Because people aren't thinking, well, what's the right thing to do here? What they're thinking is, what is my boss going to like? You know, how yeah. am I going to keep my job? You know, there are uh, other other considerations that are more um, yeah, relating to what's good for this, you know, um, machine or institution mm -hmm. that are superseding that. Yeah. So help us understand. Okay. So let's, let's say we have transitioned. We've identified the problem. We've transitioned. We've sort of adopted a teleological way of looking at things, a virtue oriented, uh, uh, values. Um, if someone is in that place and they're interfacing with someone that is in the emotivist paradigm and, and that, you know, how, how do we have that discussion with them? Like you said, the debate, or how do we even how do we even work for a company that's like that? Um, how do we interview? How do we inter interface uh, with um, yeah. different paradigms? Well, this is this is a great question, and I uh, you've given me a little bit of time to think about it because you, you sent it in early, and I really appreciate that because um, I think this is maybe the hardest part is you know recognizing the problems, but then actually coming up with solutions is, is really tricky. And of course, it's very personal, right? I mean, I have people that are on the other side of these divides who are uh, flesh and blood relatives or people I care quite a bit about. Um, but we seem to be, you know, miles and miles apart when it comes to some pretty important issues. Um, so one one example that cropped up, you know, perhaps providentially, um, <laughs> but I saw today uh, is this, uh, and I can send you the link. Um, this person named Daniel Daniel Kineman, who uh, he, so this is sort of an academic solution, right? He recommends adversarial collaboration on academic projects. Okay. So let's say that um, you're a, a utilitarian and I'm a Kantian deontologist and there's a virtue ethicist here. Well, you know, he's he's maybe doesn't have that in mind exactly, but he would say, <laughs> um, you know, why don't we get people involved at the research level at the very beginning who have different views um, so that they're all sort of equally invested in the project, mm -hmm. I guess, rather than completely coming at it from your own school, your own wheelhouse, and then sort of throwing your assumptions at what they mean when they say this or that at them, you can have this sort of shared history with, of, you know, familiarity with the subject, which can, I think, you know, has a lot of potential to uh, allow people to have a more sympathetic, at the very least, you know, it might not bridge the horizon, so to speak, <laughs> but it might help you at least understand the other side better. That's a sort of, you know, academic, uh, you know, uh, intellectual answer. But I, 
my heart tells me that that the more and and this is something I I wrote about in my thesis on secularity um, in for my master's degree, but I think that um, the real the real trick here is in hospitality, which is to say, if our worldviews are so completely opposed that we I can well enough recognize that um, nothing I can say will convince you because we're operating from completely different founding principles of truth or heaven knows what else. Um, the best way for me to actually win you over, you know, to win someone over would be to be able to host them, hosp show them hospitality in an environment that is sort of wholly dedicated to or a product of or in alignment with um, these true things that I that I'm sort of that we're disagreeing about. Right. Yeah. So so here's one example. Uh, if if I have a disagreement with someone on an issue, a social issue that's, say, uh, regarding marriage. Right. Um, many Christians or conservatives have how to disagree when it comes to something so personal. Um, but for instance, if my position is there are certain things that we ought to do and certain things that we ought not to do, the best way to convince someone I'm not just trying to be mean when I say you ought not to do this would be maybe to have you over for dinner and actually model what the positive, the fully fleshed out positive view is that I'm attempting to win you toward. It's not anti-intellectual, but it's not 100% cognitive either. I think that we have to recognize the, the important role of pathos in rhetoric and that there's a sense in which um, it's not emotivist to say that a lot of people believe what they believe for emotional reasons. Yeah. But to sort of understand that, um, as Thomas Cranmer, the great theologian of the 16th century is said, uh, that what the heart wants, the mind justifies and the will pursues, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and that's not to say that we can't sort of just want the truth. So, but most people, um, they need to see sort of the heart side of it. Like, what is it that it, that you're so passionate about? Is it that you just don't like the way other people are doing things? Is it really emotivism deep down? It's like, <laughs> no, I actually, there's a, there's a, an ordered sort of, uh, view of the cosmos that I believe in. <laughs> And if I can cultivate a place, whether it's in my home or in my church or at the local, you know, bowling team or whatever, you know, coffee shop, whatever it is, where um, that vision of the cosmos is shared by a community, then that's the sort of thing that can um, really open people up to the possibility, I think. You know, you have these sort of... Uh, uh, the architecture of plausibility, right? Yeah. It becomes plausible because, oh, now I've actually seen people living as though this is true. And it's, 
not repugnant, right? It seems even possible that it is. Yeah. Yeah, that's interesting because I what I'm hearing from you is creating, you know, part of it is about creating the type of order, the type of paradigm that we're talking about, at least in the within a sense of where we can control that. Maybe it's our right our home, our our community, our the the part of work that we might have authority over. Mm -hmm. And um and to model that and, and for that living example to be um enough of attention to sort of give us a hearing like hey what we're trying what i'm trying to create is this and if this is a value to you maybe you be interested in being someone mm -hmm. who creates this type of thing too absolutely because i mean what seems logical or plausible out in the middle of the street or doesn't seem plausible could seem very look very different with different lighting or with the right people in the room yeah you know i i almost think of it as like um like I'm not a huge sports guy, but if I'm with a friend who really loves a team, like I can get caught up in whatever it is that they love about this and, yeah. and enjoy a game, you know? And similarly, if under the right conditions and in, in an environment that's sort of uh, cultivated um, according to that paradigm, a particular paradigm, which you happen to believe to be the true one, right? Yeah, yeah. And you ought to have good reasons for that, you know, so we don't want to be pluralistic in that way um then i think that that can really help people along being able to really consider your uh perspective in the most um charitable light yeah now when it comes to like actually discussing the issue in those environments or contexts uh do you find that it's more productive to to uh talk about the the base uh paradigm um you know Compare and contrast why and what we believe versus the premises and the assumptions versus um, the conclusions of those uh, paradigms within a particular issue like abortion? Hmm. I think it really depends on who you're talking to, you know, um, and just different levels of familiarity, knowing where this person is at as a person, you know, and this is where the virtues actually become really useful. Um, so if you kind of have a a, a well-developed sort of just perceptiveness to to really um you know understand the moral situation and and to be able to read read people and um and also understand that not everyone is completely honest when they say things and <laughs> yeah I've I, I can tell you I don't I think it's more of an art than a science I've been in a situation where I was told by someone that they thought I was being really forward and kind of pushing too hard with someone in a debate who I didn't know as well as my friend, but then was later told by that person that they really appreciated how direct and engaging I was, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and it can work both ways, right? Yeah. So I think that, um, again, it's more of an art than a science. Well, I have that Apologies. last question. I, yeah, yeah. Our our, uh, our extra podcast guest is, <laughs> is being uh, being upset about things. Yeah, I think it's okay. Maybe we're modeling a way to do podcasts that's that's uh, not uh, a little different. <laughs> yes, hopefully, just so she doesn't grow up to be an emotivist, right? Or... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I have the last question um, uh, about the Christian perspective. Is that something you want to chat, or do or do you think we're out of time here? 
Well, I can just say some of what I mentioned earlier about McIntyre becoming a Christian later in life is missing from After Virtue. You know, he doesn't really have this belief in common grace or natural law and it shows and I think that um you know just something that we have to keep in mind with all of these prognostications as to you know the world and where things are at it can be you can look around and see where certain things are headed and get really down or depressed or um lose hope but I think you know the Christian virtue of hope um is really useful there to say, hey, uh, this is ultimately in God's hands. It's not a project of humankind to um, redeem itself, to make sure that we uh, get everything right so that we can have virtuous communities. I mean, we have our part to play, but if we can understand that telos, that is, you know, our part is part of a bigger order and that... Um, ultimately, uh, God's will be done, then I think that can definitely um, make for a more hope-filled and uh, positive outlook. You know, um, sometimes the news cycle, especially in the last few years, can make you think that nothing could possibly become better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or that people could will never learn how to... Um, agree or even agree about their disagreements if we can understand ourselves as part of a bigger story and that this is one chapter of it things could very well turn around so i guess what i would wonder um there is because i think i share a lot of the the uh a lot of the concerns or criticisms of modernity as we experience it particularly in the political realm but i think uh, a large segment of the of the population, particularly I'll, I'll kind of pick on the, the far right for a moment here. You know, I would agree with some of their contentions, but I think they're going about it in a way that is um, antagonistic and destructive versus productive. And, um, and so how do you reconcile that dynamic in terms of not only um, recognizing the issues, but also how people are responding to all these issues in ways that are actually tearing things down in a, in a worse way. <laughs> Or accelerating it or being a part of it yeah well I would say this right or left I think that um, there's not a whole lot of other regarding going on in the rhetorical world um, I think and also I would say that perhaps the left is just better at the masking side of it yeah you know um, whereas the the right pro probably because there's sort of an a uh, underdog feeling to it have yeah. are a little more unmasked in their aggression yeah you know um all of that is to say i mean as christians there's a sense in which we have to recognize that you're always called to both love and pray for your neighbor um and your enemy too yeah right so even if you think this person is so wrong that there are dire and fatal consequences hating them is not really uh, an option. Yeah. And in fact, praying for them is what we're asked to do. So um, I think that's something that everybody needs to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and and that doesn't mean that truth is unimportant or that um, uh, there aren't 
things that are worth contending for, but I think uh, all of these, you know, again, remembering our purposes in, in why do you care about this in the first place, you know? Yeah. Um, and further, if you think that a disagreement is there's incommensurable, so to speak, then um, maybe uh, this isn't the place for rhetoric, right? Yeah. Maybe it's uh, a different word is necessary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, thank you so much for sharing your perspective. We got through quite a bit there. Um, we had a, a little bit of commentary from your daughter, Isabel. Yes. Um, <laughs> what, uh, how can people connect with you? Where are you at on social? What are the websites uh, that you're involved sure. with? Sure. Yeah. Um, I'm at Jesse Nigro on Twitter. Feel free to follow me there. Um, I am the editor-in-chief at NorthAmAnglican.com. Okay. And I am also starting up a, uh, a podcast that sort of uh, delves into um, some secularity, some virtue, and some the, the role of narrative and, and storytelling and myth uh, at Remembrancer.net. Remembrancer.net. So, cool. Yeah, I'll put the links to all that on the, on the page in the notes. I appreciate it. Yeah, and, and I appreciate then I, you're it, uh, taking the time with me. Yeah, yeah. And then what about social? Are you active on any channels? Um yeah, I'm I'm on Facebook and Twitter and uh that's mostly it for now. Yeah. All right. All right. Sounds good. Anything else you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to? I don't think so. No, I I just hope that people will um delve into this stuff and and think hard about it and um you know, uh, question question your institutions and be open to finding yourself in agreement or disagreement, right? Um, yeah. And, you know, just because you question something doesn't mean you reject everything either. So, yeah. um, all that being said, uh, don't stop asking questions. And if any of your listeners come looking for me on social, I'll be glad to see them. All right. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Share Life. For additional stories and systems to live better and work smarter, visit jasonscottmontoya.com. That's jasonscottmontoya.com. We look forward to having you listen in on the next episode of Share Life.